0: Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10 today. And if you were with us last week, we looked at just two verses. We looked at Paul's short greeting, his little introduction to this letter. And there was a lot to learn in just his greeting to us. We learned that uh, we all have a name and a calling We learned that we all have a past as well, and we learned that we have an identity in Christ Jesus. And so we just looked at two verses. This week, though, we're going to be looking at seven verses. And I know what you're saying. Slow down. That's getting a little too fast. It's okay. I think we're going to be really good because I've called today's message Poor Millionaires. And um, because today the set of verses we're going to be looking at are going to just tell us how rich we are in Christ Jesus. Because I believe there are some of us here in this room today, there's others watching online or in our masked-only venue, who are living life like poor millionaires. You don't realize the resources that are within your reach, because we haven't taken advantage of the richness that's found in Jesus. It reminds me of a story I read earlier this week, it's a, by a, a, her name is Heidi Green. I learned a little bit about Heidi Green, you probably don't know who she is, but she was a woman born in the early 1900s and she was known for her cheapskate ways. In fact, she was known as America's greatest cheapskate. Now, some of you might be sitting here going, no, I'm married to America's greatest cheapskate. And if you're like, neither one of us are really cheap, you're the cheap one, okay? So I'll save you a lot of arguments and fights. But she was known as America's greatest cheapskate. And you might be thinking, well, is it because she didn't really have a lot of money or she knew how to stretch every dollar? No, it wasn't that at all. In fact, Heidi Green also had another title, and it was known as America's wealthiest woman. In fact, when she died in 1916, she left an estimated 100 to 200 million dollars that's a lot of money. I mean, if I got that, I'd probably be like, I'm set. Like, let's, let's get phase two, three, four done. Maybe we'll just buy half of Clarksville. Like, I think I'd feel pretty good with that set of money. But listen, if I did a little research and calculating, in fact, what I found out that if she died today, she would have left an estimated 2.3 to 4.7 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. But what's amazing about Heidi Green is she lived like she was poverty stricken. She would, uh, in the mornings, she, she would eat her oatmeal cold because she didn't want to heat up the water. She wanted to save the expense for it. In fact, one time her son had a severe leg injury. And instead of using all the money that she had to go to a clinic to get him cured, she drove around trying to find a free clinic. And his leg infection got so bad that they actually had to amputate his leg. She accelerated her own death because she didn't take care of herself either. She lived her life like she was bankrupt, destitute, destitute, and like she was broke as a joke. Like there was no doubt about it. She lived like she was broke, but she was a multi-millionaire. And I believe that there are some of us here today who are living just like Heidi Green. We're rich, spiritually speaking. We are rich, But we haven't taken advantage of the richness that's found in Jesus. We're living like poor millionaires. And what Paul's going to show us here in our text, in these next few verses, is how much we actually have in our spiritual bank account. See, if you remember, Paul is writing this to a church in Ephesus, to the Christians in a time and place in which it's really hard to be a Christian. It was hard to be a follower of Jesus at this time. And I think some of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we would say the same thing. We would say, man, it's really hard to be a believer in Clarksville or hard to be a believer in 2021. You know, if I say that I'm a Christian or if I do certain things or say certain things on social media, I'm going to be labeled a certain way or put in a certain category. It could be hard to be a follower of Jesus. But remember, Paul is writing this letter to a bunch of Christians and he doesn't start out with sympathy. In fact, all throughout this whole letter, we don't see sympathy at all. In fact, when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison cell. Not the most ideal situation there. And he doesn't offer these Ephesians some shallow, oversimplified recipe for your best life now. That's not what he does. In fact, the way he starts this passage can totally blow our minds in the way he even sets the tone for what he's about to say in verse 3. So let's look at it. See what Paul has to say to, to them and to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See what I love about verse 3 is Paul kind of has his own praise session. It's kind of how he just starts off. After he greets everybody, he just kind of breaks out into some praise. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's telling us, hey, bless God who has blessed us with blessings. Blessed be, in verse 3, is a command. Paul is commanding us to bless God. But what does it actually mean? Every spiritual blessing. Well, first, you need to know that in your Bible, blessings are given. They're not earned. A great poet of our time, Chance the Rapper, once said this. (laughs) "When When the praises go up, the blessings come down. See, that's a great line in a song, but that's not exactly how blessings work. There are a lot of us today that we believe that if we live a life that God is happy with, if we live a life that God is pleased with, then in turn he will bless us. But the Bible calls those rewards, not blessings. See, if you live a life that God is happy with, if you're taking steps of faith, if you're serving him, if you're going out into your community and you're telling people about Jesus, if you're living a faithful life to Jesus, then what we're told is that we will get rewards, but those rewards will be in heaven. Paul's point in this passage is not that God has blessed us because of something we did. It's actually quite the opposite. God has blessed us just because. He's blessed us out of the overflow of his love, his grace, and his generosity that's in his heart. So he hasn't blessed us because we've praised him enough, or shouted loud enough, or sang on key, or raised our hands higher than everybody else. God didn't bless us because we made good decisions for him, or did good things for him. Blessings are given, not earned. And next Paul's going to list out what some of these spiritual blessings are. Some of the richness that we have in Jesus. And before we dive into what that list is and what he's talking about, you need to know that for the Jewish people at this time, the language that Paul uses in this text would have been loaded with meaning and emotions. It would have been loaded with all kinds of ideas for the Jewish people hearing it. It would have been like if Paul were writing to us today, and he would have used words like freedom or independence See, those are all words with just basic meaning, but behind each word is a whole lot of emotions and ideas and history associated with those words because we're Americans. And in the same way, the, Paul, the, the words that Paul uses here in these verses would have just touched the hearts of the Jewish people who are reading this or hearing this. And so today I'm going to do my best to help us feel the same thing they would have felt. But I'm also going to try to remind you today that if you came in these doors spiritually broke, you're living life like a poor millionaire, my prayer and my hope is that you would leave here knowing just how rich you are in Christ. So let's look. Verse 4, Paul tells us this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you came in today and you feel a little spiritually broke, the first thing that you need to be reminded is it's not about who you are, it's about whose you are. It's not about who you are, it's about whose you are. Look at some of the things that he wants to, the words he uses to remind us of that fact. He says that you're chosen to be holy and blameless, predestined us and adopted us. Again, Paul is writing this to a bunch of believers in Ephesus, a church that he started to a church of people who are just feeling the pressures. And Paul is almost like, hey guys, I hear that's a little rough on you. I hear things are getting a little tough right now. But let me tell you how rich and how blessed you are to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Paul is trying to remind us here that when life is unstable or fear set in or discouragement or disappointment comes into our life, or even just the anxieties or the pains of life come into our life. Paul is telling us when life feels so large and out of hand, you need to remember who you are in Christ. We need to go back and remember that we are rich in Jesus. And so he starts off by saying, I want you to remember that you were chosen. But he doesn't just leave it there. He says, you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Before the world was ever made, before sin ever even came into this world, God chose you. Way before you were even around to choose Him, He chose you. I said it when I first came to know the Lord. We've probably all said it before. We say, Well, I found the Lord. I found God. I found Jesus. Well, in a way, that's right. But God was never lost, you were lost. See, we didn't discover one day that there was a God who loved us and cared about us. God chose us. And Paul's saying here that there's nothing random about your salvation and where God chose you to live out your faith. I think it's interesting because I think Paul is almost kind of reminding himself of Psalm 139. I don't know if you've ever read that verse and just kind of paused to think about it. But What the psalmist is saying is that not only did God make you, but he saw you before you were born. And he wrote down all your days before you lived a single one of them. And not only did he know when and where you would be born, but exactly how many days you would live. See, I think we love verses like this because we love to know that we serve a God and we worship a God who's intimately involved with every aspect and every part of our lives. We know, we love that there's a God who loves us this much. I think that's what Paul's trying to remind us here in verses 4 through 6. He's like, hey, I know it's getting hard on you all, but he's, he's reminding us, you were chosen in Christ. You were chosen to be saved. You were chosen to be redeemed before the foundation of the world. And I think Paul is just literally blown away by this. And that's why he starts off by just worshiping God. And if you're a believer here today, you should be blown away too at the marvelous fact that God chose you. Think about this. God chose us and saved us by his son. It was Jesus' death and resurrection that saved us. Before the earth was created, before sin ever even came into this world, before time was even made, you were on God's mind. And when we pause, when we think about that fact, it can be mind-blowing. Yet again, it shouldn't totally surprise us because God's always been the chooser, right? All throughout history, all throughout our Bibles, we could see that God is choosing. God chose the nation of Israel. God chose Abraham, Moses, David. You go into the New Testament, He chose this little town called Bethlehem to be Jesus' birthplace. He chose this unimpressive place called Nazareth to be His hometown. Later, he chooses the 12 disciples. He chose Paul. And if you've given your heart to the Lord, if you've decided to follow Jesus, he chose you. See, it doesn't make sense. And you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, well, what did I do to deserve this? Why did God choose me? What value, what goodness did I have that God found in me to be called his son or daughter? I hope the answer isn't something that disappoints you or shocks you or anything like that or you're not surprised by my answer, but the reality is that there's nothing. There's no quality. There's no value. There's no goodness in you that made God choose you. It is clear by the best intentions and the high opinion we may hold of ourselves that God choosing us had nothing to do with that. God chose you before the foundations of the world. And you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, well, I think the Lord made a little bit of a mistake here. I mean, you're looking at yourself and you see your flaws and your shortcomings. Just remember something. You are still a work in progress. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God isn't finished with you yet. He's going to complete what he's begun in your life. God chose you and made you to be something and he will make you into that. You still might be sitting here and going, but why did God choose me? Why is it still that what basis? Why did he choose me? Well, he chose you because he chose you. And that's too simple of an answer. Look, we could get a more in-depth answer uh, that God gave the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 7:7 when he says this: why he chose the nation of Israel. He said, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, It was simply that the Lord loves you. That's why. God said, I love you. I chose you. And you might be sitting here and going, well, I don't understand that. That's okay. I don't either. Welcome to the club, all right? But I think what Paul's trying to get at here is that we're supposed to rejoice that we're supposed to celebrate, that we're supposed to sing. We're supposed to be caught up in all of these emotions because he chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us. He adopted us to be his children. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that should blow your mind today. You should want to stop for a moment and just give God a little bit of a praise break right now because he chose you. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. It had nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's grace and God's generosity. So if you're feeling spiritually bankrupt today, you need to remember whose you are. But here's the second thing you need to remember, that you have been bought by Jesus. You've been bought by Jesus. Verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In these set of verses, I want us to focus on two words, redemption and forgiveness. The word redemption simply means to buy back or to buy out of. I don't know if you've ever had your car towed for one reason or another. Maybe you were parked illegally and so they towed your car away or maybe for you, you had a bunch of unpaid parking tickets and so the meter maid came around and she found the cash cow and and had your car towed away because of all the unpaid parking tickets and so then you had to go and redeem your car out of captivity. But when we read the word redemption in the Bible, that's kind of the idea here. That God has bought you back bought you out of your captivity. He has bought you out of your sin. To the Christians living at this time, when Paul would have used these words, it would have made them remember the story in Exodus, when God redeemed the children of Israel, when he bought the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. So when Paul reminds us in verse seven that in him we have redemption, he's telling us that our sin has put us in a place that we don't wanna be. He's telling us, remember that our spiritual freedom has been purchased by Jesus. I've heard it said this way, that sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and will cost you more than you want to pay. See, for those of us who are saying amen, we've experienced that firsthand. We understand what that means. Some of you here today, you don't realize it, but you're there right now. The point that Paul's trying to make in this passage is that on our own, we all end up there. We all need to be redeemed out of our sin. We need someone to come in and purchase us out of our sin. Some of us are here today, and we need to be bought out of alcoholism. We need to be bought out of pornography. We need to be bought out of drugs. We need to be bought out of anger, greed, the lies, all of us sin, all of us fall short of the glory of God, and we all need to be bought out of something today. See, what we don't need is we don't need a slight behavior modification, we need redemption. We need to have somebody come in and purchase us out of our sin, and the way that happens is what Paul mentions next when he says, uh, through forgiveness of our trespasses. See, redemption happens when we need our sins forgiven. Whenever a wrong of any kind occurs, there's always a debt that must be paid. So let me illustrate it this way. Uh, I've been playing uh, guitar for about 25 years of my life, and uh, it's something that I've always loved and always enjoyed. Uh, In fact, my wife can attest to this, I have a very bad guitar habit collecting thing happening in my house right now. Uh, Over the last 25 years, I've collected many, numerous guitars, and I have the guitar that I first learned on, all the way up to what my dad recently bought me a couple years ago. He bought me a, for my 30th birthday, he bought me a Gibson Hummingbird guitar, so I love those guitars. And uh, he also bought me a Gibson prototype guitar. And this guitar is very valuable. It's very rare. They only made two of them. And so I have number two hanging up on my wall. And so these were gifts that my dad just happened to give me because he supports this bad habit. So I often tell Jen, it's not me. I'm broke. I can't buy these types of things. You got to talk to my dad about this one. But I have this guitar hanging up on my wall. So let's say you come over to my house. And we're kind of hanging out, and maybe I'm showing you some of the rooms of the house, and you see this guitar hanging up. And you're like, oh, I had no idea you played. I play a little bit. Do you mind if I dabble on this guitar? And I could say, sure, go ahead, play away. And you could start playing this and you could really be enjoying all the sounds and the tones and just feel like all the chords sound heavenly as if this was the Lord's guitar himself. And so you're just enjoying it and you're playing it. And then all of a sudden you just think that you're on the world tour. You're with some band and you just start swinging the thing around. You start bashing it against the walls. And the next thing I know, my treasured guitar is broken. Now, when I see this, I'm going to have to remind myself of a couple of things. One, that I'm a Christian so I better be careful what I say. (laughs) And two, that I'm a pastor, so I better be careful the words that I say as well. But when I see this, uh, uh, there's a debt that's generated when that happens. And because of that, there's a debt. Either you have to pay for this or I have to pay for this. You could say, well, number three, or you could just tell me not to worry about it. And I would say that's a very bold and audacious thing for someone to say who comes in and just breaks guitars as they want to. (laughs) But you're right, I could do that. But all that means is that I've absorbed the debt myself. If I tell you not to worry about it, I'm effectively one Gibson guitar poorer than when I started and you came in and you waltzed in and you broke all my guitars. Now I'm poor because of that but it's because there's a debt. There's not just a debt, there's a debt that needs to be forgiven. Listen to this. True forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one who's forgiving. True forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one forgiving. To forgive someone means that you're absorbing the debt that the other person created. And so what the Bible tells us is that Jesus forgave us of our sins when he died on the cross for us. And that doesn't mean that Jesus just shrugged it off. It was like, oh, it's no big deal. No, he didn't do that at all. He absorbed the debt that all of us created. It was your sin last week. It was your sin this morning. It was the sin on your way to church. It's the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow. It's all of those sins he absorbed into himself. And what we get in return is we get forgiveness and redemption because of what Jesus did for us on the cross when he took all of the punishment that we deserved. And let me just say, this isn't just a theoretical cost either. It was a physical cost. To receive redemption and forgiveness, Jesus had to shed his very own blood. And that was what was accomplished on the cross. But what Jesus did on the cross doesn't just stop there. It gets better. Look at what Paul says that it leads to. In verse 9, it says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. So what Paul is getting at here is what Jesus did on the cross. He doesn't just do for our sake. It actually doesn't conclude with us. It actually has a bigger and fuller purpose than that. And here's the last thing you need to know, that you are part of God's great plan. You are a part of God's great plan. Paul is telling us, because we've been redeemed and forgiven, God is making known to us the mysteries of his will. They were once hidden, but now they are revealed to us. And his blueprint is to ultimately unite everything under Jesus, all of his creation under the name Jesus. See, I think if you were to paraphrase verse 10, we could say that God's plan is to put things back together. Because by saying that God is going to put things back together, we're implying that things currently aren't the way they should be, and they're broken, and they need to be put back together. Now, I don't think that statement requires much convincing, but just to to make a case, let's look at our world right now. Our election this last year proves to us that our country is more divided than it ever has been Before. But I think more importantly, what it reveals to us is that we as Americans have no clue how to respectfully talk to one another when we disagree with one another. We have no idea how to communicate with one another. And so the way we talk to one another is broken and needs to be put back together. Another example while we would love to believe that racial tension in our country has come a long way since our founding fathers, it's become apparent over the last few months and few years, that there is a massive gap that needs to be bridged, specifically speaking, between black people and white people. And so race in our country is broken, and it needs to be put back together again. We've also seen that we have a horrific history of sexual violence in our country, and it has been suppressed for far too long and silenced in far too many ways the way a lot of people exhibit and express sexual desire in our country is broken and it needs to be put back together. It's even in a general sense. More marriages and families are broken. Divorce is rampant. Fathers are deserting their families. The way we do marriage and family is broken and it needs to be put back together. And that's just here in America. The reality is that our world, things have never been as they should be. There are things in our world that we haven't even touched the disorder or the brokenness going on in other parts of the world. The evidence could go on for miles and miles and miles. But what's clear to us is that as the world, as it stands right now, is broken and it needs to be put back together again. In fact, for many of us, the brokenness we see on a regular basis seems so constant that the promise of God trying to put things back together seems almost like nonsense to us. It feels so radically different than our current realities. It sounds like a fantasy to us, but it's not. The basic idea is through God choosing us, adopting us, redeeming us, forgiving us, he's also now recruiting us in his plan for all of creation to unite all things under Jesus, to put things back together. So what God is doing in our world is way bigger than giving some people a free ticket to heaven. That's just one aspect of it. The purpose of what God has done for us is to make us a part of putting this world back together. We're now a part of God's great plan. He's invited us into that. See, for me growing up in the church, I, uh, the one thing I knew everybody wanted me to do was to accept Jesus. And after I accepted Jesus, I knew everybody wanted me to get baptized. But then at that point, I thought we were good to go. There really wasn't much clear direction for what to do next. I mean, there was this vague sense like, hey, you need to keep coming to church, and that is important. We need to keep growing with one another, and that there were times that this vague sense that I needed to bring people with me, and that is true. We need to bring people with us because other people need to accept Jesus, but the one thing that it felt like this whole thing was designed to do was centered around this one thing, and that was to get people to accept Jesus. But as I've studied this verse today, or this week, God's plan is not just to get people to accept Jesus. Listen, he wants you to do that. If you're here today and you are far from Christ, if you don't know him as your personal Lord and Savior, listen when I say this, he wants you to experience that. He wants you to come to Jesus to experience his grace, his love, his mercy on you. He wants you to experience that, but that's not the end goal of our life. That's just the starting point. Accepting Jesus is the starting point. And by accepting Jesus, by choosing and being adopted and redeemed, and by Jesus forgiving people, it's God's ultimate plan to unite us in all of creation under the name Jesus to put things back together. But to get things put back together, you need to be put together as well. See, all of time is marching to this end goal, to this event, and it's called the second coming of Jesus. Everything. There's no mistake. Person who's in the White House, you sitting here today in your seat, the leaders that we have, the, the job that you have that brought you here, everything, every piece of your life is falling to an event, and that is the second coming of Jesus. And you're here today. You are either united with Christ or you're you're not at all. You're not united with him. If you're a Christian here today, you've received Jesus into your life. My What I think Paul is saying to you, and my challenge to you here is today, that you should rejoice, that you should worship, that you should praise God because of the many blessings that he has given you, because you are rich. My challenge to you is stop living like Heidi Green. Stop living life like a poor millionaire and start cashing in on the riches that Jesus has for your life. And if you're here today and you're far from Christ and you don't know Him as your personal Lord and Savior, then we need to go to the starting point. You need to accept Jesus into your heart and into your life. Today, you may have walked in spiritually broke, but today, I want you to experience the fullness and the richness that Jesus has to offer you. He will take all of your sin. He absorbs all of that. And in turn, he's going to give you his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, and he's going to redeem you today. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.